My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Let people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. It's nail-biting time, even if you don't bite your nails. Right now, we're figuring out if the recent collapse in commodity prices is because the Fed's wrenched all of the speculative excess out of the system, good, or because the world's economy is slowing so rapidly that we're headed for a terrible recession, bad. And that's the number one question on Daily Today, where the Dow dipped 62 points, S&P declined 0.30%, NASDAQ lost 0.72%. Now, I wish I could tell you the answer, but I don't think it's available yet. This morning, I had a discussion with Ken Langone, the brilliant businessman turned philanthropist. He was adamant that a bad recession would prove to be the culprit for commodities. And hey, he's got a point. The metals and plastics and wood complex are all down badly. Sure signs that industry is slowing worldwide. How inevitable is that recession in your view? Are we in a recession right now? Never say never. I think we are in a recession right now. I think intellectually and mentally we're in a recession right now. Wow. Yeah, it ran with me all day. So I thought about, is it true? Well, I don't know. I puzzled over it for hours. Uh, why don't we approach this empirically before we conclude that we're un- unavoidably headed for a deep recession? Remember, the ideal outcome here is to get enough of a slowdown that the Fed can take up rates gradually without throwing a ton of people out of work. Every day we get clues. We just need to know how to interpret them. Today, we learned, for instance, that pending home sales edged up 0.7% in May versus April. Oh, boy, that's a too-hot statistic. That means the Fed will have to tighten more aggressively. That is a Langone number. But then you look underneath the headline, and you see the truth. The Northeast accelerated 15.4% month over month, smoking hot, bad. However, nationwide transactions dropped 13.6% year-over-year, with the largest decline in contract activity taking place in the West where homes are way more expensive than the rest of the country. According to the National Association of Realtors, contract signings are down sizably from a year ago because of much higher mortgage rates. Now, this is where it gets really tricky. The chief economist for the National Association of Realtors, Lawrence Yoon, clearly seems alarmed by the signings number. He says, and I quote, trying to balance the housing market by choking off demand via higher mortgage rates is damaging to consumers and the economy. The better way to balance the market is through increased supply. Of course he's right. But the Fed can't build more houses. The home builders are trying the best they can to build as much as they can. See, I see comments like this, and it makes me think we could be looking at a rapid breakdown in sales. That's good news for the stock market, as long as it's not too rapid. My wife sells real estate for a living. She taught me that the prelude to a sudden plunge in housing prices is a dramatic drying up of contracts. That decline is what J-Pal wants to see. He'll keep bringing that pain until it happens. He needs housing prices lower. They're up 20% over two years. When you put together the declining value of real estate, though, with the declining value of your 401k, well, you're going to have a weaker consumer, maybe a much weaker consumer, maybe two-week consumer. How about the enterprise? Today, we got durable goods orders, and they were up ever so slightly, 1.9 billion or 0.7% to 267.2 billion. In a vacuum, I think that's excellent. But we're in a good news is bad news situation where strong numbers mean the Fed needs to tighten a lot more aggressively. How about commodities? All right, now, here we got to break them down one by one. 
Some great news here. Soy, sugar, corn, cattle, all down. Cotton's on pace for its worst month since 1995. Wheat's having its worst month since 2015. Copper, worse since 2011. That's all fantastic from an inflation perspective. We'd be worried that Russia's invasion of Ukraine would cause worldwide food shortages, even famines. And it is in some places because so many calories have been taken offline. But now it's looking a little less likely. These commodity collapses are exactly what you want to see, and they're not from the Fed. However, crude oil, which had spent most of June going lower, finally snapped back today, up more than 2%. Natural gas jumped nearly 3%, so there goes the neighborhood. When energy's running like that, it's hard to believe we can have a soft landing, isn't it? Because high gas prices put a ton of pressure on the Fed to tighten. We go back and forth and back and forth. The drug stocks rally because of a belief that the Powell will throw us into a recession. The tech stocks fall because we're beginning to get layoffs. UiPath, uh, one of the fastest-growing tech-darling automating repetitive motions, laid off 5% of its global workforce today. That would be inconceivable as recently as six months ago. Power boats, according to Baird, down 18% year over year in May. And then we got this cautionary article on CNBC.com about the coming Wall Street layoffs as the capital markets business is falling apart. Something you can see from the total drop in IPOs. The math is ominous, the article says. Headcount at JP Morgan's investment bank, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, jumped by 13%, 70%, and 26%, respectively. You can only imagine how little some of these people have to do. Goldman Sachs has told me over and over again it can cut its table of employment swiftly and still make excellent money. I sense that maybe they have to do that. Another blow to the high-end real estate market. But then again, after the close tonight, Morgan Stanley just announced a $20 billion buyback and an 11% boost in the dividend. So how bad, thing, how bad can things be there? And Goldman just took its quarterly dividend up from $2 to $2.50 and changed. Maybe things are great. Oh, and then there was a savage report today by Goldman Sachs saying that Coinbase will have to lay off many more people than already has. They cut the price target for the thing from 70 to 45 citing Coinbase's voracious cash burn. Uh, you can extrapolate from there to the whole crypto complex more than them later. So where do I come down on the recession that Ken Langone warned us about this morning? Let me put it this way. I am thinking what we really need, I think we need a knockout punch. I mean, just against inflation. A real roundhouse that takes us out of this on the one hand, on the other hand, landscape. It's ironic, but both Ken Lingood and I said the Fed needs to hit us with a 100 basis point rate hike. For me, it's because that would take us where real estate losses, uh, loses value, homes become more affordable, labor market cools off enough to tamp down inflation. But Ken's talking about multiple 100 basis point hikes because he thinks we've got truly runaway inflation. As I see it, the stock market may be OK, given that there's a mix of good and bad data points. Given that stocks had such a big move last Friday, it felt like kind of like a consolidation day where we digest those gains. I, I didn't mind it. But make no mistake about it, we are not where we want to be. The fact that cranes can fall despite the Russia-Ukraine war is very strong. The fact that oil and gas are up is maddening. The bottom line, the news is precarious. It could go either way. But maybe that's what we need to see if we're going to have a soft landing, not a horrific crash landing. If all the data were strong, we'd be set up for a series of aggressive rate hikes that would wreck the economy. If all the data were weak, then it's already too late. This stuff is difficult to parse, isn't it? But it must be done, or else you're blind to what's happening out there. As I like to say at our 1020 morning meeting for Invested Club members, you need to calculate the mosaic if you're going to invest on a six- to nine-month basis, which is what I like to do for my child trust. All I can say is for a rate hike cycle, it's so far so good. Nancy in Texas, Nancy. Yes. Hi, Jim. I want to thank you, first of all, for being such a great successor to Louis Rukeyser because he cared about the average investor like you do, and you're great 
as oh, well. You're very kind. Thank you. You're really kind to say that. I appreciate it. He was a great guy. Uh, my question is about Caterpillar. Okay. I have a great profit in it, but it has come off its high, of course, and I'm wondering if I should pare back my position or just sit back. I want you to buy more. I think Jim Mumbleby is the man. I think they're going to be – if you take a three- to five-year approach to this stock, wow, is it going to be great. And that's the way you got to look at it. Don't forget 2.5% yield and a really smart CEO. Now I want to go to Todd in Texas, please. Todd. Jimmy Chill. The Chill Man is here. (laughs) Oh, man, you made my day. What's your your take on Global Foundries? Well, look, I mean, right now the Global Foundry business is good. It typically is not a good business long term. I think it'll be fine. I would much prefer you to see, be in LAM Research, LRCX, which they have to buy in order to make a foundry work. And that stock is very, very cheap. Now we're going to John in Maryland. John. How are you and your staff doing today? My staff is unbelievable. They make me look good every single day and they don't get enough appreciation. Thank you. Good. I'm glad you're doing good and your staff. I'm a um, longtime viewer and a thank member you. of your investment club. You guys do a great job. Oh, thank you. I'll tell Jeff Marks later tomorrow morning. Thank you. Okay, my question, Jim. I'm a longtime holder of Morgan Stanley. Um, I bought some early March, a little under 90. I've been following it all the way down. Think about buying some more here. Trades at a little over 10 times earnings. Looks like it's positioned well. What are your thoughts? I couldn't agree more. They got a, we got a big position, as you know, for the Chapel Trust. We keep buying it down like you. Why? Well, tonight they announced a gigantic dividend boost, 11%. More importantly, they have a $20 billion buyback now. So they're buying everything they can. That's why I like Morgan Stanley and James Gorman. They are doing terrifically. And it is such an inexpensive stock. It's kind of ridiculous. How can that thing be at nine times earnings? Wow, that's just wrong. All right, for a rate hike cycle, I don't know, so far so good. On Man Money Tonight, Global Wafers, a silicon wafer company that supplies companies like Intel, announced a multi-billion dollar factory today in Texas. I'm talking to Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo to get a read on what the government is doing to help ease the chip crunch, and believe me, she helped get that plan here. Then FedEx has surprised Wall Street after earnings. So what was, the, what was behind that strength? More importantly, could it continue? Breaking down the numbers. And is Belden, the network solutions company, a classic example of a broken stock? I don't know, man. I think this is a stock that of a company that makes things, does stuff, gives you money, all the things we love. Well, I'm finding out more about it with the CEO. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Right now, we desperately need the government to work with big business to bolster domestic semiconductor manufacturing. We outsource too much of this to Taiwan, South Korea, which is a major reason for a recent chip shortage. And when it comes to domestic semiconductor fabrication, I've got good news 
and bad news. The good news, today we learned that Global Wafers, a Taiwanese company, is building a multi-billion dollar silicon wafer factory in Texas. These wafers are the starting material for all advanced chip manufacturing. First one of these facilities in America in more than two decades. But then there's the bad news. That CHIPS Act that I like to talk about, that $52 billion piece of legislation that would support much more investment in domestic semiconductor manufacturing, it still hasn't passed Congress. The House passed one version, the Senate passed another, and they can't seem to reconcile the two. Just last week, Intel said it might have to scale back its plans to invest tens of billions in new domestic semiconductor plants if this bill doesn't pass. They told me they may do it in Europe. Now, earlier today, we had the chance to talk about all this with the real driver of this legislation. And it's Gina Raimondo. She is the U.S. Secretary of Commerce, who's fortunately taking point on the issue. Let's take a look. Madam Secretary, welcome back to Mad Money. Hello, Jim. Good to be with you. Well, let's start with the good news of today. This is a very big greenfield announcement about global wafers coming to Texas. Can you just give us that good news? Because it really means a lot of jobs and a lot of semis. It's huge news. Uh, They're going to make a $5 billion investment in Texas to have a new greenfield facility to produce silicon. And, of course, silicon is what we need to go into semiconductors. The reason this is so huge, Jim, is because it fills a hole in in the United States supply chain of semiconductors. Right now, we don't make any of the silicon for the most sophisticated chips. And with uh, the size of this new global wafer facility, they will produce enough silicon wafers uh, to fulfill our entire U.S. domestic demand. So it's a a huge announcement, thousands of jobs, as you say. It's a real vote of confidence in America uh, and, and in the hope, in fact, that Congress will be passing the CHIPS Act. Well, before we get to that, I also want to emphasize, and you can help us, this might have gone to Taiwan. They might have built it there, which is way too close to China. And we do not have enough capacity in our country. Yes, that's exactly right. And I, I spent a, a long time on the phone with the CEO of this company, uh, my team, with, with her team. That's absolutely right. They did not have to choose the United States. In fact, a, even as recently as a few weeks ago, it wasn't obvious that they would choose the United States. They are currently based in Taiwan. Korea had big incentives on the table for them to operate in South Korea. We won this, Jim. This was competitive, and and the United States won. Uh, And as I said, I think it's a a vote of confidence in our country, in our economy, and in uh, the Biden administration's commitment to revitalizing the chip industry. But I want to say this. This investment that they are making is contingent upon Congress passing the CHIPS Act. The CEO told me that herself, and they reiterated that today at this conference that we're at. So Congress really better get its job done and and do so quickly. Well, I'm getting worried. David Ignatius, who's a smart guy I've known for years, talking about how it's suddenly a Christmas tree bill that that people have loaded it down with other things because they know it's going to favor it. Uh, New York Times, with funding stalled, chipmakers warn Congress the U.S. is lagging. We know that there are issues that are making so that a done deal is not getting done. What day, what week, what month will we see this done? Uh, It has to be done before they go to August recess. I don't know how to say it any more plainly. This this deal, this global wafers, 
will go away, I think, if Congress doesn't act. Oh. Intel has put has Intel has publicly said their operation in Ohio, their plans to put a new facility in Ohio is on pause, waiting to see if Congress gets this over the finish line. Micron, which is the America's only memory chip manufacturer, has their plans on pause, waiting on Congress. So the stakes are high, time's running out, decisions are being made now. You know, Jim, here's the thing that we really need to realize. Semiconductor demand is through the roof, globally. Semiconductor demand is going to double in the next 10 or 11 years. It takes a couple of years to get a new facility up and running, which means these companies have to make their decisions now. Global Wafers made the announcement today because they need to have the facility, cement in the ground on the facility in November. So a long-winded way of saying, I think they have until August 4th, uh, which is their recess, and I hope they get it done. Well, uh, Pat Gelsinger recently told me at a dinner that Europe's ready. Europe wants it. Europe's doing everything they can to get uh, Intel to do this. And why not? I mean, Europe is a, a terrific, hospitable place for Intel. There's no reason it has to be here unless we get this done. There's no doubt about it. Europe is ready. Germany is aggressively targeting these companies with incentives. I was just with the president in South Korea. South Korea has the K-CHIPS Act. They are aggressively targeting companies. France, Israel, Spain, they are out there. They're ahead of us. These companies want to be in America, right? America is still the best place in the world to do business. Deep capital markets, good talent, lots of R&D. Their customers are here. They want to be here. But mark my words, Jim, if Labor Day comes and goes and this CHIPS Act isn't passed by Congress, these companies will not wait and they will expand in other countries. And those are once in a generation investments and this country will lose out. Well, okay. so you have Senator McConnell. He can't be passive. He's got to be involved. Uh, Leader McCarthy, I know he likes this bill. Obviously, Nancy Pelosi definitely wants this. The president has said, listen, give me the bill. What is the problem? Who are the people who are getting in the way of this? So we really have to make it clear that they are hurting our country. It's time, I think, for people to get much more practical. Uh, And I would say we in the past few weeks, Congress is doing that. I should say Pelosi, Schumer, uh, McConnell are engaging in the past few weeks. I've, I've spent time on this every single day. But the, everyone has to realize you're not going to get everything you want, right? We, we have to winnow this down to the essential items, get this passed, and move quickly. It's time to prioritize speed over uh, getting everything in here that you want. And so I would just say to every member of Congress, the consequences to our national security are grave if we don't get this passed. And if you're not going to be able to get everything you want in this, it's time to move on because we cannot wait. But I I am told there's uh, trade title, science funding, foreign relations committee provisions. Those all may be good, but they are being loaded into this bill, which makes it very unclear that this thing's going to pass. And if it's not done by August, as you said, I mean, it's going to get very, very difficult. Have they even scored it in this congressional budget off, scored what this would cost? Uh, They have for the chips portion of it, which is, you know, the only... um, appropriation. But you're exactly right. There's a trade title. There's a foreign relations title. There's 
a lot of this in here. And the message has to be, you know, set a deadline. Whatever can be negotiated and agreed to by that deadline, fine. Other than that, drop it, leave that to another day, and let's pass this as quickly as possible. Because if we don't, as I've already said, these companies are not going to wait. They cannot wait. Uh, they're going to have to build these facilities in other countries. Let me tell you this. Global Wafers, this one company we're sure. talking about today, if this weren't to happen, let, let's say the United States stopped importing silicon wafers from other countries, within two to three weeks, our entire domestic semiconductor supply chain would be shut down. Oh. Like, that is how vulnerable of a position we're in, which is my, which is my message to Congress. I mean, I'm, I talk to members of Congress every day, seven days a week, anyone who will listen, saying, guys, the, 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 you can't not do this. If you don't get the trade provision now, we'll deal with that later. If you can't get this farm relations now, we can deal with that later. The chips component cannot wait. Well, we are cheering for you. We know how important. I saw the letter from 100 CEOs. I know that from the Defense Department, they need this very, very badly. Just keep working. We've got to get this done. U.S. Secretary of Commerce, Gina Raimondo, thank you so much for coming on Mad Money. Thanks. We'll return in a moment. Coming up, special delivery. What's driving the recent FedEx rally? Kramer's got the goods. Next. As we near the end of another rough month for the market, we're finding some real bright spots, but in the most unlikely places. Bright spots like FedEx, which has seen its stock surge 21% from its lows just a couple of weeks ago. Now, if you told me a month ago that FedEx would help lead us out of the depths of despair, well, I would have been extremely skeptical. Ever since it peaked almost exactly a year ago, this stock has become, let's call it, that total dog. FedEx topped out at just under 305 in June of last year and spent most of the next 12 months working its way lower before finding a bottom under $200 this spring. For the last few months, it's been repeatedly bouncing off the 190s to 200 level. And it's easy to understand why this thing's been such a poor performer. FedEx has been struggling with snarled supply chains, rapidly rising labor costs. At the same time, the great reopening of the U.S. economy meant consumers pivoted away from e-commerce, causing the whole freight complex to get. Remember, they wanted to go out again. Plus, they were up against some very tough year-over-year comparisons because business was booming during the darkest days of the pandemic before the bulk of the population got vaccinated. But this month, FedEx has made a number of announcements, including a widely praised quarter last Thursday. And now the stock has jumped from 201 to 240 in just two weeks. So how the heck did they turn things around? And more importantly, could the stock have more room to run? First, you got to understand where the company's coming from. Before COVID hit, FedEx was struggling. 2008 to 2019 were not good years to these guys. Suboptimal execution, the ill-fated acquisition of TNT Express in Europe, the Trump administration's trade war, repeated failures during the all-important holiday season. Then the pandemic came along and the initial COVID crash, Wall Street realized that e-commerce could explode. Given that hundreds of millions of people were stuck at home, the only safe place to stop was, shop was the Internet. And somebody has to deliver those packages. By the end of 2020, FedEx was charging to, uh, to, to near uh, new all-time highs. And the stock kept running through the first half of 2021. But in September of last year, they turned in a weak quarter blaming the Delta variant for causing major staffing difficulties. And there's a great, great piece of the conference call, which shows it really was that. 
It disrupted their operations badly. Things only got worse in 2022 got rolling. Wall Street started worrying about, about first about an e-commerce slowdown and then just a general economic slowdown once the Fed got really serious about raising interest rates aggressively. Doesn't help the FedEx took a huge hit from wage inflation. Yes, gasoline matters. When FedEx reported in March, their earnings came in weaker than expected, even as management reiterated their full-year forecasts. And that's what fueled the last leg down. But even before the March quarter, we started hearing speculation that activist investors were circling, pushing for changes that would unlock value for shareholders. Then right after the quarter, founder and then CEO Fred Smith announced that he'd be passing the torch to a fellow by the name of Raj Subramanium, who's always been on the conference call for the last couple of years. He's the chief operating officer who became the new CEO at the beginning of June. Smith came on the show the day after the succession announcement. And in what turned out to be a truly prophetic interview, he sounded very confident about FedEx's near future. Listen to this. We're very confident in our strategies, and we're going to show a lot of those that we haven't really showcased uh, in the last uh, a couple of years for very good competitive reasons at our investors and lenders meeting in late June. Now, just, you know, this man's a hero of mine. He created this business. He's worked so hard. And it is so great that he said that because you know what? Wow. Was he right? Well, look, the stock initially jumped from the mid-220s to 240s on the succession news. Then we went into another hideous period for the stock market in April, May. It took the thing down to 190s. Again, FedEx repeatedly bounced off that 190-200 level, but it never seemed to be able to find traction. That is until a couple of weeks ago. And that's when we got a series of bullish announcements that Fred foretold us when he when he came on the show. Announcements that fundamentally changed the whole narrative. First, FedEx put together a 53% dividend boost, raising the quarterly payout from $0.75 cents a share to $1.15 a share. Now, even after that dividend hike, we're still only talking about a roughly 2% yield, but nothing great. But this is the kind of move that's a major sign of confidence. We always tell you to pay attention to these things. Companies don't put through a 53% dividend boost when they're worried about making the next quarter. And while a 2% yield is not enough to be competitive with Treasuries here, it's also not nothing. Don't forget, this is a market that only values profitable companies that reward their shareholders with dividends and buybacks that sell at reasonable prices. We've been very right on that since November. At the same time, FedEx appointed two new independent directors to its board, part of a cooperation agreement with D.E. Shaw, quirky activist hedge fund. They also changed their executive compensation structure to be much more responsive to total shareholder return relative to the broader stock market. We like that. But the big thing here is that all of these announcements reflected a deeper change of FedEx. See, for years, this company had been spending money like crazy in order to integrate the European business they acquired from TNT Express. Didn't really work out that well, but maybe ready. And generally build out capacity to handle an increasingly e-commerce dependent world. Now, though, it looks like FedEx is finally reaping the rewards from that spending. Management feels like they can put, uh, put their cash to better use now, like that massive raise of the dividend. Which brings us to last Thursday when FedEx reported. If you only looked at the headline results, this was not a super impressive quarter. They posted a tiny top and bottom line miss. However, the guidance told a very different story. For their 2023 fiscal year, which started this month, FedEx forecast that they could earn $22.50 to $24.50 per share. The analysts were looking for less than $22. Looking at that forecast, FedEx is telling us they expect 9 to 19% earnings growth versus last fiscal year. Oh, that's huge. Like I told you last week, this is a tough market because the earnings estimates for so many companies are still too high. In some cases, way too high. Remember, we're always talking about that? But not FedEx. The estimates for FedEx turned out to be too low. This is a rare story where business is actually 
better than we thought. The next day, the analysts raised the price targets on this. And we got a few more of these bumps today, perhaps because these analysts were taking Friday off. Now let's talk about the final piece of the puzzle. Let's talk about making money, something Fred Smith mentioned to us back in March. He said to expect good things from FedEx's next investor day, the event that comes Wednesday, first investor day in a decade. This will be new CEO Raj Subramaniam's first major chance to lay out his strategy. I am optimistic, and not just because this man's a genius, but because if FedEx has finished with its huge capital expenditures to build out new capacity, that means this can be a much more profitable company, more focused on returning capital to you, a shareholder. That big dividend boost two weeks ago might just be the tip of the iceberg, which is exactly what you want to see in this environment. The bottom line, you might think FedEx will be a helpless victim of high gas prices and potential e-commerce plateau. Fed mandated slowdown. That would be wrong. This company's taking control of its own destiny. And based on the new guidance, it's selling for just 10 times earnings, 1.9% yield. I think you'd do a lot worse, especially with that big catalyst coming up in two days. Jacob in New Jersey. Jacob. Hey, Jim. Uh, thanks for all you and your staff do. I'd oh, like course. to also give a special shout out to all the nurses at Overlook Hospital. Oh, my, of course. I, they work so great and they so are so terrific. And I know a bunch of them and I'm so glad you brought them up and I salute them, too. What's up? Yeah, my question is about a vacation ownership company or a timeshare, as most people refer to it as. Here's what I'd like to know. With increases in leisure demand last year but now negative headlines about increased talks about a recession possibility and higher interest rates. What is your opinion on the company Travel and Leisure, ticker symbol TNL? Uh, uh, not a fan. Um, I think, by the way, the Travel and Leisure, we're going to spend all our money and then we're going to be done spending and we're not going to travel. I think people are traveling beyond their means right now and we want to we want to pull back from anything travel. That's my goal right now. And thank you for those kind words about the, yes, the nurses at Overlook. Robert in Illinois. Robert. Hello, Mr. Kramer. Booyah. Blessings on your company and making money and blessings on your family. I have a question for you, sir. Sure. Um, there's, a, there's a negotiation going on between CP Rail and Kansas City Southern. And um, Norfolk Southern and UP are trying to um, go to the Surface Transportation Board and contesting it. And I want to know what your insight is on this, sir. Look, anybody who gets KSU, you want to own. KSU is a re- just a fabulous, fabulous train. And I think that they are the best free, the best railroad that you can buy. So I hope that whoever gets it wins. I think it's going to be, well, look, it's just a great piece of business. Look at this, guys. This is what you're looking for. Because you know why? Yes. FedEx is taking control of its own destiny, selling for just 10 times earnings, 1.9% yield. Nice catalyst coming up on Wednesday with an investor day. I like this one. Hey, much more mad money, including my schools with Belden. Could the company's recent transformation into a diversified network solutions company be the secret to be embraced by Wall Street? Because no one's thinking about it except for you and me. I'm checking in with the CEO. And if interviewing SEC Chairman Gary Gensler this morning on Squawk in the Street, you know what? I think we've got a stark warning to those in the crypto and SPAC space. I'm going to reveal what I learned in Oracle's calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. You know us. We're always on the lookout for new ideas. Sometimes that means new companies. But in a market like this, frankly, I'd rather hunt for old companies that are being overlooked for one reason or another. 
Take Belden, BDC for you home gamers. For many years, this company made cables, both copper and fiber, but recently it's transformed itself remarkably, frankly, to a more diversified, much more fast-growing network solutions play, both hardware and software. They've got exposure to industrial automation, smart buildings, broadband, 5G wireless, all themes you know we like. Most importantly, the company's doing very, very well. When Belden last reported in early May, they shut the lights out. But because the broader market's been so ugly, as you know, the stock's been stuck in the 50s for months. I think it's not getting the credit it deserves. Management just reaffirmed their full-year forecast two weeks ago, yet the stock sells for less than 10 times earnings. Makes no sense to me. But don't take it from me. Let's check in with Rule Vestens. He's the president and CEO of Belden to get a better sense of where his company's headed. Mr. Vestens, welcome to Mad Money. Thank you. appreciate the opportunity. Okay, so Rule, I've got to tell you, when I was first pitched Belden, I said, I don't want that copper and wire company. <laughs> what do they have? I think, like many, I misjudge. I misjudge what you're doing. I misjudge what you're doing broadband, fantastic industrial automation, perhaps the fastest grower in industrial automation of all the companies I follow. Mm -hmm. How are you able to, to transform things like this? Well, I think that misperception is part of the problem. So we used to be 100% a cable company. Now cable is about 35% of our revenues. And over the last 15, 16 years, we dramatically changed the portfolio. So we focused on the markets that we want to play in. And now we only play in industrial automation, smart buildings, as we call it, and broadband and 5G. And within those markets, we're able to provide complete solutions to our customers. And I don't think that message has come across yet. Well, do you want to mean number one in each? Because I saw you cybersecurity. No. Could it mean number one? Uh, of course we could. Yeah, what you decide. Could. Yeah, yeah. Well, because I'm trying to figure out like, what you decide to be passionate about and what you feel you can't make money in. <laughs> Well, we feel that uh, within industrial automation, for example, which is 54% of Belden's revenues, we're able to provide complete networking and connectivity solutions, which include launching it in a secure uh, environment. Okay. So, and we previously weren't. So that's one. Two is, um, I actually think this environment of increased rates is actually beneficial for us. Explain that to me, because most people say, no, you're an industrial company. Because uh, we provide digitization. So. Uh, think about machine builders, for example, like, for example, a Coca-Cola or, or any type of company right. that has large, operates large machines. Um, as opposed to making capital investments for future expansion, they're now more likely to optimize the current assets and make sure the current assets create a higher productivity. And that's what we do. All right. Now, broadband 5G, uh, I've had many companies on there in broadband 5G. It seems crowded to me, but you're growing 16 percent. How is that possible? Uh, yeah, we have a very high innovation rate within that segment. Uh, in, that, for in that business alone, I think we have 700, 800 patents. Uh, we have very high customer intimacy. So we work with all the major broadband providers uh, in the United States, but more and more uh, ex- internationally mm-hmm. as well. And we're able to provide solutions together with them in our lab. Now, you are looking, I, I, I don't know why you put this out, because we could be in a recession, for $8 by 2025. You must be very confident about secular growth here, because if it is cyclical, that could be derailed. Well, the way that we get to the $8, appreciate you bringing that up, $8 EPS it's, by 2025. It's a nice goal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we got to have a good goal. Yes, so you do. So that implies 12% compounded annual growth rate mm-hmm. EPS. Uh, that's what we've done over the last three years. So including the dip in 2020, and if we take the, the midpoint of our guidance uh, that we've issued and reaffirmed two weeks ago, uh, that's 12% over three years every year. So it's okay. maintaining the path that we're on. 
Now, smart buildings. Sometimes I feel that is a, a congested group. For instance, Honeywell tells me they're in smart buildings. And then you also have companies like Zebra that do smart buildings work. Um, what this thing, you know, Honeywell's a huge company. Mm-hmm. How do you go up against Honeywell? Well, we, we operate in slightly different spaces. Okay. Uh, but we used to play a lot in commercial real estate, and commercial real estate is still part of the portfolio. But we've reallocated resources over the last three years to mainly healthcare facilities and data centers. Okay, they're not in healthcare. Now, one last thing that I need to know about is that, you know, when you've got analysts who literally are saying that, look, you're, you're ignoring higher rates, you're ignoring the Fed, you're ignoring China, you're ignoring Europe. What do you say to them? Well, I say we focus on the things that we can control, and we're very bullish about the secular market drivers. And um, like I said, I actually think this tightening that we're in, the increased rates, is good for us. It reinforces the secular drivers that, uh, that we play. Well, will some of the bigger firms then follow you? Because you've got a much more compelling story than a lot of the industrials who come through here. Uh, yeah, we feel good about our positioning. We feel good about this digitization trend that we uh, have launched. We launched a complete new software program two weeks ago on June 15th. Uh, that make assets more productive. And I think that's exactly what our customers are looking for right now. Well, you make things and do stuff at a profit and sell at a reasonable price and return some capital. And that is the solution for what we're looking for in this market. That is uh, Rule Vestians. He's the president and CEO of Belden BDC. Guys, if you remember Belden in the old days, you got it wrong. I know I got it wrong. This is the new Belden. May have money's back after the break. Stick around. May I make a suggestion? I would stay with him. The lightning round is coming up next. It is time. It's time for the lightning round. That's where it goes. One of the same said, I played this out. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Skate that. Time for the lightning round. Let's start with Mike California. Mike. Booyah, Kramer. Booyah, Mike. Hey, my question is about a stock that was, it surged early and then it's back down to a good level. Ticker symbol UPSP, upstart. You know, look, I, I, I want to see their balance sheet a little cleaned up and then I can come back and start liking them again. I didn't want to see any, any actual interest rate risk on their balance sheet. And right now they have some. Mark in Michigan, Mark. Mark. Yes, I. Uh... I've been watching you since your Cudlow and Kramer days. Holy cow. That's a long, long time ago. Thank you. What's up? Yes, I'm interested in uh, WIRE. Is it a good uh, 5G uh, investment for the next 10 years? No, it's very funny because that was the company I was trying to think of when we had Belden on tonight, which is a rival, but not anymore. You should be looking at Belden. Let's go to Craig in Florida. Craig. From South Florida, big booyah to you. Nice, nice. Hey, I use this device at work, and I really like it. Silk Road Medical, symbol of silk. Well, Uh, it could be good, but we're not recommending any stocks of companies that are not making money right now. It's too risky a time to do that. I'm sure I'm going to end up passing on some great companies by that, but you have to have discipline going to PT in Texas. PT. Hey, Big Jim, you are the Sam Bankman of fried green tomatoes, if you know what I mean, partner. Well, I guess I'll take that. What the hell? I mean, my hair used well, to look like his. I saw you with your Crocs in your garden. Just thought I'd give you a little shout-out. My daughter loves the Crocs. On, uh, S-I-V-B, Silicon Valley Bank Corp. You're a wild man. Um, you know, I think it's a very inexpensive stock. 
But after what I saw Morgan Stanley do today with that buyback and the dividend boost, let's just stick with Morgan Stanley. Okay, let's just stick with it. I need to go to Charles in South Carolina. Charles. Hey, Jim. Great to talk to you. Oh, hey, same, kinda, Charles. Uh, got a little value, uh, semiconductor. Get your opinion on. I know you're an AMD, NVIDIA guy, but this one's got a six and a half yield, single digit P, fifty uh, percent earnings growth, running at hundred percent capacity. What do you think about UMC United Microelectronics? Thanks, um, okay, that one. It- Look, it's a very inexpensive. It's a great spec. How about this? Let's leave it as a great spec and move on. Andy in Colorado. Andy. Hey, Jim. Thanks for taking the call. Of course. Hey, I've got a question for you about uh, Bank of America. Well, I thought Bank of America could have uh, boosted its dividend a little bit more tonight. Uh, Makes me feel like that uh, it's better to go after uh, Morgan Stanley. Uh, I think that's a better buy. It's just a fact of life. And that. Ladies and gentlemen, it's the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, when does innovation turn into chaos? Kramer on the collision between crypto and the SEC. Next. Jim Kramer, you're one of my heroes. I look forward to your show every weeknight. Thank you so much for helping beginning investors like me. When you talk about the market, I just believe that you're spot on. Oh, I love it. Thank you so much. Every night we watch you, I have learned and earned. There's a certain naive smugness about the people who promote crypto or SPACs that I, I quite frankly find unnerving. Don't get me wrong. I love innovation. Applaud anyone who truly believes they got something that can make you and me money. But whether we're talking crypto evangelists or SPAC sponsors, these people don't seem to understand that there's something called the Securities and Exchange Commission run by Gary Gensler. And if you don't comply with the regulations, he will come after you. When we interviewed Commissioner Gensler this morning on Squawk on the Street, he reminded us that ensuring disclosure is the most important part of the SEC's job. The commission isn't trying to stop new things. It's trying to make sure that investors know what they're getting into. Unfortunately, there are an awful lot of companies that don't want to see, who really don't seem to want you to know what they're up to. It's, it's like they think disclosure is a dirty word. For example, there are 400-odd special-purpose acquisition companies that are in search of businesses to buy. And I think the commissioner is as rankled as I am by what these SPACs are up to. SPACs are, in essence, blank check companies. But aren't we all taught from a young age not to give anyone a blank check? Worse, when these SPACs find a company to merge with, the puffed-up nature of the projections is atrocious. I told Chairman Gensler about when I brought the Street.com public back in 1999. We wanted to include all kinds of positive stuff from the prospectus, but the SEC shot those points down one by one by one. While I always respected the commission as a trader, on the corporate finance side, the, kind of, the rigor kind of blew me away. I'm glad they're finally getting serious about these SPACs, which are basically a way for startups to come public while avoiding the regulatory scrutiny that comes with an IPO. The whole SPAC movement burgeoned under Chairman Gensler and his immediate predecessor. I think it's finally run its course after losing people fortunes. Which brings me to crypto. It's very clear that the crypto promoters simply don't understand the role of the SEC. They behave like there are no rules, but that's not true. Right now, Chairman Gensler is studying the situation. Some would say he's awfully late given how long crypto has dominated the speculative landscape. As Gensler said, if you buy it with this expectation it's going to go up, that's a security, which means he's going to regulate it. 
I want you to listen to what he said this morning. It's really important. Right now, you have hundreds, if not thousands of these crypto tokens that have the basic attributes of raising money from the public and having a group of entrepreneurs that you might have on your show saying, come hither. We've, we've, got, we've got a good idea for you. And, and that's okay in America if you comply with the laws. And we've got, unfortunately, a lot of projects that are non-compliant. I think the crypto promoters badly misinterpreted Gensler's studious approach for distress, or maybe a kind of benign regulatory neglect. Crypto-oriented companies like Coinbase seem to feel there's no lash coming from the SEC for their aggressive promotion, and they're nowhere near the worst actors. I was hoping Gensler would push for the $66 billion tether, the so-called stable coin that's meant to be pegged to the dollar, to finally show us its hand, because this thing's backed by lots of commercial paper that we know nothing about. I didn't get that. But what I did get is a bit of a warning to the cottage industry of people who exist to get new investors into crypto. Yes, she's had enough. They don't want more people losing money, especially in something they don't understand. These crypto purveyors seem to believe that they can get away with anything, and the SEC's toothless. But the more havoc they wreak, the more they'll feel the lash of the commission that makes the rules, the rules that they'll eventually have to live by. I like to say this always bull market summer. I promise I'll find just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Kramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now.